Have you tried Music to Code By yet? Well, why not? Here's a comment Joe left on the website. This is also great music to mow by. I like listening to music while doing yard work to help the monotony of it seem less tedious. This past summer, I started listening to these tracks while doing yard work, and they worked great! I could let the music play in the background without focusing on it, and it seemed to help me concentrate on getting through my tasks. Thanks, Joe. And you know, now you can download the entire 13-track collection. That's over five and a half hours of music to code by for only 39 bucks. Check it out at musictocodeby.net. .NET Rocks, episode 1384, with guest Roland Hout. Recorded Monday, November 28th, 2016. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Here for another hour of .NETty goodness. And how are you, buddy? I'm finally recovering oh, that's nice. from that Dutch plague I got. Yeah, I don't know as if we've done any shows since you got that, but no, let me no. just tell the listeners that it was so strange to be at dinner with Richard and have him not dominating the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was just so quiet. He was just like, yeah, I, I got to get back to my room. <laughs> it's just, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> I can't really sp- you tried to jump in with something that you felt passionate about at one point in the conversation and you, you were just like turning red yeah you stopped yeah very strange yeah, it was bad it was about halfway through the conference and there's anything worse than being really sick in a hotel room no and then uh the, i mean the good news is my buddy remy lives in in amsterdam and i just went to his place right and uh and recovered there got some and home comforts little home comfort uh, little people telling you no nobody knocking on the door or anything yeah uh he's got a nice place up in uh here hugo ward mm. i practice saying that mm-hmm. uh and you know and it was raining the whole time which for me from where i'm from is actually soothing Right. To just be bundled up in a bunch of blankets and, and trying to recover. I really didn't want to fly in that condition. So I was yeah. able to get more or less under control. But even after I got home, uh, another week yeah. to just try to get myself back together. It's been a long time since I've been just off my feet for two weeks. True. I spent most of the time in my hotel room writing code, which was great for me. Yeah. Productive. Yeah. Productive. And speaking of code, let's uh, kick off the crazy music for Better Know Framework. Awesome. <laughs> All right, dude, what do you got? Well, uh, this is an article from Smashing Magazine. which Smashing. Uh, yeah, smashingmagazine.com. I've never heard of this magazine before, but it was an interesting article, and one of the next guys, Brian, brought it up. Mm-hmm. It's about chatbots. You know, chatbots are exploding everywhere, right? Microsoft got in on it with the bot framework, but uh, all over Silicon Valley, uh, chatbots are going crazy. And so this article is called, Does Conversation Hurt or Help the Chatbot User Experience? His whole argument is that, you know, I don't care if it's chatty. I, if I'm using a bot to do something, I want it to be efficient. Right. I don't want it to, you know, seem like it's got a, a psychological complex. 
Yeah. Or it's got a, it's got a lot to say. It's like, just yeah. do what I ask. Please. Just do what I ask. Exactly. It's a very New York mindset, I think. Oh, totally. But this, the author says, here's an example of a quote unquote conversation I had with 1-800-Flowers Messenger Bot after I became stuck in a nested menu and was unable to return to the main menu. Not exactly a pleasant or productive user experience. And so it goes like this. Bot says, please select an option above. He says, let me see main menu. Please select an option above. See original options. Please select an option above. Go back to all choices. Please select an option above. This bot is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter what technology you use. If you write bad code, you're going to have a bad result. Right. But I thought a couple of the bots that uh, this author pointed out were pretty interesting. And one of them makes the case for a chat. It's uh, Mitsuku one of the world's most popular chat bots. And yes, it is very chatty and I checked it out, but it wasn't, it was conversational, but it was kind of random and it wasn't at all answering my questions. Uh, and then there's another one called Poncho, which is a, a Facebook messenger bot that gives you basic weather reports. And uh, it's kind of got the personality of a Brooklyn cat, you know? So, uh, <laughs> you know, what's up? Making some tea. What are you up to? Checking the weather. Hmm. And then a cat sticker. The bot throws out a cat sticker. Meow. But um, what's cool about it, though, is like I said, there's a couple of really good bots that they highlight and a couple of not so great bots. And it just makes you think about when is chatting appropriate versus, you know, just get to business. So that that's it. It's a good article. I recommend anyone who's interested in the topic, read it. And uh, it's at 1384.pwop.me. So who's talking to us, Richard? I grabbed a comment off of show 1326, the one we did at NDC in Oslo, mm -hmm. uh, with the security panel. That was uh, Troy and Niall and Stephen Hans. Yeah. Uh, you know, good collection of troublemakers, that's for sure. Yeah. And uh, this comment comes from Oshri Cohen, who says, I love the show, and I think you hit all the right points, but I would like to add an important factor. Of course, we were talking about security and software, right? Right. The company you work for must inherently value security. Otherwise, as a developer, you will be beating your head against the wall and ultimately fail at convincing them, or you'll spend more time per task for something that only you value. Mm. I ultimately left the position of CTO for that reason. The company I worked for did not value security in any way, and they should have. I was yeah. fighting them from day one. We were talking SQL SA account access to every developer on production live server, lack of sensitive data encryption, sensitive files available through HTTP pull without authentication, or disk-based encryption. This is a message to all ethical developers that are in a decision-making position. If your security standards are not being met, run really fast. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, this is an interesting point, right? I, I, the past few months, actually, there's been a lot of conversation about the ethical developer. You know, right. was, I, I feel like the ethics of software development are are under pressure yeah. to some degree. You know, there's a lot of people talking about the fact that our software is having as much impact as it has. And, and Oshri makes this point of, you know, he's trying to be a credible developer, especially in the CTO role, where he's abundantly aware right. that breaches are coming, that hackers are out there, and that we have all these dangers. And that doesn't, even if he's sort of obviating his own risk, we say, we should do this. And they're saying, no, we don't think it's important. It's still not ethical. Right. At the same time, it's like, you kind of need a job too. <laughs> you know, gotta, you got to make a living one way or the other. There is that. This is our, the challenge I think we're up against in software development is we, in order for us to be a profession, we should be held to higher ethical standards, but it needs 
more backing for that to be true. And it doesn't happen, happened yet. I think the problem is that the reason people hire software developers is they do stuff in a realm of magic that most people don't understand. And so in order to be, um, you know, policed, if you will, you have to have somebody who is as smart as they are, who's as invested as they are in the technology and can actually tell the difference between uh, ethical and unethical software development. And, you know, unfortunately, if you have somebody that skilled, you're, they're probably writing code for you. Well, and if, the, the the challenge here is that you're presuming that they have an opinion about what you should do, but don't understand what you do at the same time. Mm. Like if they, if I'm the wizard and I say security is important, you should just listen to me. I suppose you're right. Yeah, you don't have to be a developer to put up some guidelines. Well, and I also wonder, you know, how effective are we at communicating to business in general? Like, mm. This is part of the challenge here is can I, if you don't buy into the security concerns, then more like, you know, the security concerns are significant. Maybe we're just not communicating it well enough. Yeah, yeah. Yep. I agree. It's absolutely a, a challenge. And I think it's part more and more part of the job we've got to try and deal with these things properly. So, Ashri, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there, we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And subscribe to us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. And send us a tweet. Remy reads them in his Tesla. <laughs> Remy drove you in his Tesla. He did. It was pretty yeah. awesome. Yeah. It was kind of like zero to oh my God in two seconds. Ah, please don't kill me. <laughs> right. And of course, it was raining because, you know, Amsterdam. Right. I had to uh, jar my head forward, you know, ever so much to, to get my brains back in place. Nice. It was pretty amazing. That's funny. All right. Well, let's introduce our guest uh, today, Roland Hout. Is, uh, how'd I do, Roland? Is that good? Oh, that was very good. All right. Uh, Roland is a passionate <laughs> developer, international speaker, plural site author, and trainer for many years now. Disciplines are all of .NET, JavaScript, and libraries, and enterprise development. And uh, you can check out our website for a much longer bio of Roland. He's got a lot to say. Welcome, Roland. Thank you. Great to be on the show. Great to have you here. And uh, we were just in your beautiful country, as Richard and I were just talking about. And uh, yeah. it was rainy, but it was beautiful. It's raining now, too, I'm afraid. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah. And it's cold. Yeah. We were in Harlem. Is that how you say it? Yeah, Harlem. Harlem. Yeah, yeah it's, it's Harlem like New York, but with two A's. Yeah. 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 But, uh, Harlem actually derived the name from Harlem. <laughs> I'm sure it did, because New Amsterdam. Yeah, yeah New York is New Amsterdam. Um, yeah, we're talking about ASP.NET Core Security, and uh, where do we start? It's a big topic. Maybe we could start with um, the the comment that Richard read. Yeah, the the way I look at it, uh, so most companies, uh, most companies I visit, uh, security is still kind of an afterthought, right? Yeah. Right. Uh, so I think that's still a problem. It's it's a cliche, but it's still a problem. But well, it should actually be part of the designs, right? Part of the user stories, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, that's still not the case. That's true. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't help that a lot of these security options like identity server and uh, even OAuth, you know, just uh, can be sort of bolted on at the last minute. They, it can be done, and that's what is done most of the time. But give us a, an example of... Um, how that can come back to haunt you if you do not plan for it up front. 
So implementing all auth and OpenID Connect is 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 complicated, right? So when you don't keep that in mind when you're actually developing your application, mm. it it can become very very difficult to implement it afterwards. So I'm at a customer now uh, doing some work for, uh, and uh, the customer is creating uh, a cl- kind of a landscape of of services. And third parties has to have to connect to these services. So, the uh, but but the customer didn't uh, think about security at all. So there's no sec- security in place for for the, the most common things. So uh, I'm now actually implementing a token service that has to be implemented in all the services. But these are WCF services, mm. and these are of course XML based. Yeah. And OpenID Connect and OAuth are predominantly JSON-based. So there's all kinds of conversion going on there and errors and bugs. And Yeah. Yep. So if they had thought about implementing security from the outset, do you think they would have stayed away from XML? Well, it's it's a pretty recent application. So I think when they... When they really thought it through, it, they they should have chosen Web API or something because ASP.NET Core was was not not around at that time. Right, right. Uh, but Web API would be a much better choice because it had a JSON-based service. Yeah, you already had the controllers for it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's interesting to realize that understanding your security models might influence what tools you use going forward. Otherwise, you end up constantly trying to retrofit your security onto systems that, that aren't that all that tolerant. WCF is not particularly well-suited to remote-based authentication and authorization. It's It was much more based yep. for in-the-domain type security. You know, getting yeah. back to this idea of things that don't help. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm thinking of uh, forms authentication in web forms. Yeah. Didn't really set us up with good habits for programming. I mean, the whole idea was that it could be bolted on you know, with just some configuration in that this interceptor worked in every single page and checked whether you were authorized. And if you weren't authorized, you know, brought you back to a page where you could log in. Um, well, yeah. that's a really good model, but that's not reality for modern services for the most part, is it? No, exactly. Uh, another thing that that went on in the previous versions of ASP.NET was, of course, the the data protection, so the key stuff. So when you had mm. uh, cookies, uh, authentication cookies were encrypted by the server and put on the bra- in the browser, right? Yeah. So sure. And then, and then they're, they're read back in a post back and they have to be decrypted again. It's a symmetrical uh, encryption system. So yeah. uh, the, the the key to encrypt the value is the same as as the key to decrypt the value. And it used to be that the key was in the machine.config file. Right. So it was a it was a fixed key per machine. Yeah. And what happens if you have a web farm, right? Right. Now you have to be stuck to a given machine. Yeah, exactly. So uh, one way to do it is to just copy the key over to all the machines. But right. the way well in practice, the way uh, we did it um, for the most part is just uh, grabbing that part of the machine.config and putting it in the web.config. Mm. And at that point, it becomes dangerous, right? Because you're checking that in. Right. And uh, projects become open source, and they, they, they're they on GitHub at, yeah. uh, at some point in time. And then the, the, the key is just on the internet. Right. And it's a symmetrical key, so it's good for everything. 
Yeah, so uh, once you have the key, uh, you can actually impersonate whoever you want to be, right? You can just yeah. create a cookie, and that's very dangerous. That becomes like a, a master key, doesn't it? I mean, once you have that, everything's compromised. Yeah, exactly. So, and that was not the only part in ASP.NET where that was used. It was also used, for example, you know, uh, anti-forgery. So when you have uh, a form and you submit it, you can put an anti-forgery uh, attribute on your uh, or your action. Yeah. Uh, and then an, a separate cookie is placed uh, in the browser as well, and it's encrypted as well. It's the same key. So all these all these features of ASP.NET used to use the same key. Right. That was that was just, well, out, of, out in the open for the most part. So now on ASP.NET Core, um, we have a, a different way of doing that. There's something that's called the Data Protection API. And the Data Protection API, uh, well, just... It, they just stopped using machine, uh, the machine.config key and they invented something really new. And what it does is it creates a key per purpose, per application. Hmm. So now in each application, you have a, a different key, but nice. also each, each feature or, or purpose in the application has its own like, like sub-key and the master key and the, and the purpose key form cryptographically the key. So now you're asymmetrical? No, no, no. It's it's still symmetrical. Okay. But uh, it's more granular. Got, yeah, exactly. You, you you just got a bunch of keys for each application and for each purpose. And where do you where should you be storing these keys if they're no longer in like the machine config or the web config? What's the right place for them? Well, it depends on your hosting environment. Right. Uh, but there's there's a, a mechanism for that uh, in place by default, and uh, the default mechanism is that w when you have a profile available, a user profile, then it's just stored in the well the user folder. Okay. When you're on Azure, it uses a special folder in Azure to store the keys, and these keys are automatically synced across the different uh, geolocations uh, and the different servers of your website. Hmm. If you're running on Windows and there's no prof profile available, it is stored uh, in the registry. Mm -hmm. So, and it's also if you don't have rights to to write to the disk, like if you, if you were running normally in Azure, you wouldn't be able to write to the disk. But because Azure has that key vault, there's a way yeah. to store it. Yeah, exactly. So now you have this special folder that that you will always have rights to write to. So all these different keys per task or per action reminds me of uh, something like Identity Server that has uh, not only the authentication as a service, but does federation and access control and, uh, you know, lets you sort of authorize at that API level. Yeah, exactly. Identity Server is creating tokens, and these tokens have to be encrypted as well. So, in fact, Identity Server is using data, the Data Protection API to encrypt these tokens. Oh, wow. very good. So, do you see Identity Server as an essential piece of the equation when you're working in ASP.NET Core? You should always have Identity Server involved? No, no, I don't think so. It depends on the project. Okay. So, so Identity Server is more of a central thing you have for right. authentication. 
Mm-hmm. And w- when you have just one isolated project, using ASP.NET Core identity would be a good option because okay. then you have the local thing, right? You you store your users and your pass or passwords, etc., just locally. And with Identity Server, you have a central place, which is the hub for your security, and you can you connect all these services and all these web applications to that hub. So if you've got multiple applications that need to deal with authentication authorization, then Identity Server makes sense. But as long as you're just yeah. thinking about one, it's unnecessary. Yeah, exactly. And then you get this, uh, well, the, the well-known side effect of SSO. Uh, you can just log in once and use all the applications that you have uh, with the same cookie. Right. Uh, because once the token server is, is trusted, um, the the token is trusted by the applications, and I just have to check it with with uh, identity server to see if it's valid, and then uh, the user doesn't have to be bothered again with nice. passwords, etc. So that's what the user will really see if you've done this with identity server. Is I log into one of the company apps once in the in the morning, and then every other company app I touch that also uses identity server will just start up and and know my identity, and I'm fine because yeah. I already have a yeah. token. Right. Yeah. Exactly. That's yeah. cool. So and when you, when you look at ASP.NET Core identity itself, it works out of the box with uh, with Entity Framework Core, and so you just create your own database context, and you create your own tables that are stored locally, and then you have a set of services. Uh, well, actually, ASP.NET Core identity is just a bunch of services that you get that you can inject into your controllers. Mm-hmm. And then you can do stuff like create a new user, uh, check his password, um, create a new role, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But you do have to write all the code inside of your app to sort of facilitate this too, right? Yeah, correct. So so wait, uh, let's say you have a login screen, then you create uh, uh, your, your layout and your, your controller. You have to write that yourself. Yeah. And then, and then you inject the service. Uh, to authenticate, uh, and then you can just call authenticate or whatever on the on the user service. So you have to write the, you have to write it yourself. Yeah. But there, there's also a template available. So when you create a new ASP.NET Core project, and you choose uh, from authentication options, you choose individual user accounts. That actually means uh, I, I want to use ASP.NET Core identity, and then you get a whole template with login screens and, and, and everything in place, and you can just build on that. Nice. So certain, a certain amount of the work is done for you. You just have to finish filling in all the different bits and pieces. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And if I want to tie to Active Directory, is that just another template? Uh, yeah. So, yeah, exactly. But uh, that won't be uh, ASP.NET Core Identity then. Right. Then you ju- just use the SDK for that purpose. Okay. And it, and that's obviously different from Azure Active Directory, which is the sort of cloud-based thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, so all the old methods still work. You just got a few new methods as well. Yeah, and the, the cool thing is that, um, well, I told you about the data protection API. Yeah. So it's, it's one little step back. Uh, um, so the whole machine.config uh, stuff, uh, you don't want that even even in, the older, in your old apps, right? Yeah. So... So they actually made it backwards compatible. Oh. 
So you can just plug in a package and then you can use the new data protection API in your old app, your older app, your non-ASP.NET Core app. So that's very cool. And I get the data protection APIs are protecting keys, but what else are they going to protect in my app? Uh, that's that's actually it. So uh, it's it's designed to protect keys. Right. And and it also does it um, uh, when possible. It uses uh, the uh, the operating system to uh, protect the keys. So it, uh, the, the storage is done well, like I told you, on the file system or in the registry. Right. Uh, and the protection is done with the native services that are available. Hmm. Well, in the operating system, and right now, uh, the only thing supported is the DP API in Windows. Okay, which is uh, conveniently also uh, DP API also means data protection API to yeah. make it very simple. <laughs> I've used it myself. It's pretty yeah. pretty good. Yeah, never had a problem with it. Yeah, so uh, ASP.NET Core actually uses that uh, that API to further protect the keys on the operating system level. So you you can read them, but you can't use them because they are they are protected uh, using the operating system. Um, one other aspect of authentication that's always interests me is the whole authentication using Facebook and Google and the other external providers. Do you still see this being used much? We, I've recently gone through an app where we took it back out. You mean OAuth? Not oh well, OAuth is one of the implementations, but you know right. the fact that you're authenticating with a third party provider. Yeah, yeah. I don't see it being used much. Um, yeah. um, at, at the customers I uh, I worked for, uh, we didn't implement it in the first place mm -hmm. because, well, it was like a business-to-business -business, uh, application, so right. it doesn't really make sense. I would think that consumer-facing um, apps and products would be more suited to that, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, I think I think so. That makes sense to me. The, the app I'm talking about it actually was a humanitarian toolbox app. Ah, uh, yeah. So in theory, sort of consumer facing, because this was dealing with uh, already, which was, you know, very much volunteers, but they actually would rather create a separate account for it. Like, I think they value their social media identities higher than my application identity. You know, we get that too with signups for the .NET Rocks fan club. Um, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of email addresses that are like DNR fan club yeah. at, you know. But I think that's the tech audience that we we are able to make email addresses on demand, so that we we use specific email addresses. But I I this this particular case is like these are not necessarily tech savvy people, mm. and yet they still there's a there's now a value to that social media identity that they want to keep it isolated from other bits of software. At least that's the sense I got. As well, they should because you know the social media and, and all, all these high profile online websites kind of have a reputation for getting hacked. I don't know that that's necessarily the case as so much as it is a perception that, of it. Yeah, they. It's just interesting to see regular mortals thinking about security because we always talk about them never thinking about security. Right. Yeah, and I'm, what I found is that individuals uh, don't like consent screens, right? Because mm. you get you get that message for well, you have to give up your identity and right. your contacts, and, uh, and and you have to consent to that. Whereas if you give it a unique login information, you don't have to tell them what things they're going to consent to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can lie, right? <laughs> I'm just, it's just, I'm just leaving it out. I'm just not going to mention it. <laughs> hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yes. 
It's time to announce that there is no joke today because application security is no laughing matter. It's <laughs> a good one. I appreciate that. Just kidding. Hey, did you hear the one about the guy who ran through a screen door? He strained himself. Ah, uh, save me. <laughs> Ah, oh, well, I, I couldn't resist. It's actually time, Richard, to give away an Infragistics Ultimate to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But let me tell you first about Infragistics Ignite UI. This is the complete HTML and JavaScript toolkit to build modern browser experiences on any device, desktop, tablet, or phone. Designed for the enterprise, you'll create high-performance, touch-first, responsive apps with AngularJS directives, Bootstrap support, and Microsoft MVC server-side widgets. More at igniteui.netrocks.com. Awesome, dude. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Anthony Keller. Hi, congratulations, Anthony. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. Golf clap for Anthony. Anthony just won the Infragistics Ultimate, a big pile of awesome from our friends over there. And if you don't know what we just did here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, which is now, not this show, but very, very soon now, yes. we're going to be giving away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you got to sign up to win. And now we'd like to ask our guest, Roland, if you had $5,000 US to spend on technology today, what would you buy? Well, I'm a movie buff, and um, the thing that was on my uh, wishing list for a while was a 65-inch OLED screen. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, the OLED screen is very nice. Oh, they are so nice. And actually, I got one now. <laughs> ah. <laughs> and uh, So I know what a 65-inch screen is, but what's an OLED screen? And how do you so spell that? Uh, so it's OLED, uh, OLED. Okay. And and um, so the the screen consists of uh, so every pixel is basically um, a LED. Right. So so when you uh, uh, when you watch a movie and the screen goes blank, you're in the dark. Right. right? Yeah. It's <laughs> right. very black. There. Yeah. You you don't even see that the, not the, the set is on. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> Uh, so that that gives gives you very great black levels, very good wow. black levels. OLED is the latest sort of progression from plasma to LCD to LED, and now OLED is that it? Yeah, exactly. So the, yeah. the normal uh, LEDs have the uh, have the backlighting, mm -hmm. and the OLEDs uh, don't have backlighting at all anymore. So, wow. but I have that, and uh, I'm actually quite spoiled because when I go to the to the cinema right now, um, I, I find the, the the image quality uh, below par. <laughs> wow, isn't that funny? So you're talking about three, four thousand dollars in Easy that five range. Grand. OLED's expensive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I can see some uh, for a, under three thousand dollars US right now at Amazon, but uh, you're right; those, those those seem to be the ones that are on sale. Yep. Yeah, it's that time of year. But I already have it. But when I got five, when I get five thousand dollars now, in the near future, I want to do something with kids and computing. So oh, yeah, nice. uh, I don't know about the U.S. and Canada, but uh, here in the Netherlands, there's a, a huge shortage of of good schooled people that that want to do development. 
Mm. And I think one of the reasons that, that there is a shortage is that uh, kids don't get the opportunity to get motivated, right? Mm -hmm. So what I would do with $5,000 is to buy uh, a couple of Mindstorm sets. Yeah. And then go to schools to explain the development process and do the visual programming thing with robots. Nice. Yeah. That's great. Kids just need us. They really do. They need people like us who, who know how to put these things together and can explain it in, in uh, plain, easy to understand language. Yeah, well, exactly. and just show them, you know, software can be awfully abstract. So yeah. I, I think you're, you're on to something with the Mindstorms thing, Roland, because it gives a physicality to it all. Yep, totally. And they're not that expensive. For five grand, I think you can get like 50 sets. Like they're not that expensive. Hmm. Yeah, they're about, I think, $200. Yeah, something like that. So yeah, yeah you can get yeah. you can get a classroom's worth anyway. Yeah, exactly. It's cool. It'll be fun. Great idea. Should we dive back into this? I think we spent the whole first half just talking about authentication. We haven't really talked about authorization at all. We've left claims to the end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And ASP.NET Core, the whole th the whole authorization thing and the authentication thing is claims based. Right. Uh, it is actually not new. It was it was there from from .NET 4.5 onwards. The principle you have available in your uh, in your controllers is actually now an I claims principle, and the I claims principle can contain multiple identities. So that's because a user has different identities, uh, not only the identity with your application, but also right. well, we talked about that Facebook, Twitter, etc. Yep. And each of these uh, identities have claims. So the right. thing is, you can you can now base your authorization, so what the user can do, uh, on these claims. And what would a typical claim look like? Would you just have a claim for you have a right to use this app? There are two separate uh, types of claims. Mm -hmm. One is about the information of the user. Right. So uh, city he's in or... Uh, uh, whatever, the color of, of her eyes or whatever, doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the other part is uh, actually, well, kind of custom claims for your organization, like I have access to this and that API, and if so, uh, what level of access? Are you an administrator or whatever? So th these are examples of, of claims. Okay. And when you're using identity server, these claims are actually grouped into scopes. In Identity Server, there are three uh, entities that are interconnected to each other. One is the user, of course. The other one is the scope. And the third one is the client. And the client is an application. Okay. So you have your uh, front-end application. You have your API. You have your another API. These are all clients. And now you can say, well, this client can access these scopes. And scopes are typically groups of, of, of claims. Right. And uh, when the user logs in, that scope is actually requested at the token service to be uh, released from the vault of information. And then the consent screen kicks in. So the consent screen tells the user, well, I want to have access to this and this API and have that, this and that information on behalf of you. Do you agree, yes or no? And mm -hmm. then that information is actually released to the client. 
So there's this idea that the client is actually requesting what claims it's allowed to know about you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and it's just giving a sense of granularity that an app does not immediately get every claim. Exactly. So scopes are used to kind of limit that information, to set the boundaries for, for the information that is being exposed. And, and I'm, I'm thinking of this at different levels too, right? Like there's the, do you have a right to use this app? Do you have the right to use this app as an administrator? But more granularly would be, and I'm thinking back to identity server, can I create claims that actually span apps? Like you have a right to see payroll information. Exactly. Or to use the re reporting uh, API or right. whatever. So that kind of uh, kind of thing. Yeah. So then the 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 client receives that information, and now the authorization part kicks in, and it's also new in in ASP.NET Core. So on on the basis of these claims, you can now create policies in your code that actually read these claims, and then. Uh, create some kind of, of access policy from it. So, for example, you can create a policy called admin and then say, and then read the claims information to, to see if there's a claim called uh, admin access or whatever. Right. Then you just use the authorized attribute on your controllers and say, I want to use this policy, this admin policy. And then automatically the claims are being checked in the background um, to see if, if the user has access. Okay. But in the end, these claims, they're just strings, right? Like they're, they're just a set of letters. Yes, they are key value pairs, yeah. And so, I mean, part of this is it, it's got to take some time to think through the names of all the claims. Like I, yeah. I think I would be prone to creating names based on the app name and then something specific, you know, to that app as opposed to try and create claims that are cross-app applicable like i'd hate to have a name already used and i want to make a new claim with a similar name yeah exactly exactly and the way identity server is built uh, um, identity server 4 is, is especially great at that it's very very modular mm -hmm. so credits to uh, to brock and dominic for that it's it's yeah. a really great great framework uh, it's very open and if you don't like stuff that's in there by default you can just write your own part of that framework and just plug it in. It is all open source, after all. Yeah, it's right. also open source, yes. Yeah. What's the biggest challenge that people face when uh, when implementing this stuff? Is it a conceptual challenge or, or yeah. is it an implementation yeah. detail? I think it's a com conceptual challenge because it's it's in the beginning, it's, it's difficult to get your head around it. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the scopes and the claims and the, and the authorization, and it's difficult to get all stuff good in your head or yeah. to understand it really good. And, and that's that's a challenge, and that, that's also uh, the reason I think that it's not used often. Yeah, right. uh, it should be it should be used very often. So now, when when an application is designed, uh, like we like we talked about, the security is is often an afterthought. And the reason is that uh, security, well, people look at it as being complicated and, and, uh, and difficult to understand, and you need specialists for that. And right. So when, when you're starting off on the, in the claims-based identity world, 
I would recommend just using ASP.NET Core identity first because that framework just uses plain claims. Right. And, uh, so you, you, you don't have the extra level of scopes and stuff and centralized tokens, et cetera, et cetera. It's just a database with claims. That's it. So, and when you're used to that and you understand that, then you can make the leap to, uh, to identity server. And mm-hmm. I, I get the sense you'd almost want to get to a place where people are tired of managing different claims for each app. And it's like, could we try and centralize this a bit? So if I give you this particular claim, it applies to all of the apps. Like that would be yeah. a good problem to have and probably not yeah. that hard to retrofit. Very hard, yes. I think so. Is it hard to retrofit? Uh well, once you have the names of the claims, yes. you, so for example, when you use ASP.NET Core Identity and then you migrate over to uh, to Identity Server, yes. you already have the claims, right? And the, and yeah. the access policies hmm. in place. Yeah. So the only thing you have to do is uh, well, copy over the names of the claims and let, uh, let Identity Server issue that same cl- claims. Yeah, that doesn't sound too bad. Yeah, should be okay. Yeah. The, the hard part is using claims properly in the first place, especially when I, th- I start thinking about a, a granular claim like I don't have any privileges in payroll. So when I go to the payroll section, I should only be able to see my data or I have a partial privilege in there like that. That to me, you've really got to think about how you identify those things and how you make your code behave correctly. Yeah, exactly. And also it's about your team, right? Because uh, right now I'm at a customer and, and the team members are like a junior media level. Right, and so I'm I'm implementing identity server right now, and it's uh, so what I have to think about is to make it easy to understand, right? Um, uh, and so what what I came up with is um, just use claims, but just the name part. So we're just now using claims with just uh, access to uh, reporting, access to uh, um, uh, delivery access to this so these are just the names of the claims and I, i'm not using the values at all so that makes the whole framework even simpler to understand yeah no it, it's good it's it's claims have always seemed really complicated but uh it, it seems it's getting more coherent now i just think there's a challenge to sitting back and planning Understanding the app well enough to know what are all the claims we're actually going to need? Where are the granular points of security throughout an app, much less across multiple apps? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But when you recognize that in the end, they're just strings and you're just going to need to test for these values, you know, using the methods properly, it's doable. Yeah. It just takes, and, there, and there's a chunk of, there's like an app, there's an app, an, an administrative app that needs to be built. Mm. to allow you to sort of say, these are the claims, here's how you assign them to users, like mm-hmm. all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. I'm putting on my old IT hat, because in Active <laughs> Directory, all that stuff was built into the administration tools for yeah. AD. Yeah. yeah. So it was yeah. easy for me to assign people to roles as the IT administrator, and you know the dev was just say, checking, is in role. This is more granular, and there's just no default app. You have to build it. Yep. So role-based authorization is still actually in place in ASP.NET Core. So you can g- still use uh, the authorized attribute and then specify a role. Right. The only, differ- the only difference is that the role now is a claim that is called role. Nice. I love it. Yeah. Such a good solution to the problem. Yeah, okay, you can use a role. It's just a claim called role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And the thing to keep in mind when you uh, create um, the the template uh, I talked about uh, for ASP.NET Core identity is that all these tables you see and all this stuff that is used just boils down to a list of claims. And these are just key value pairs. That's it. There's nothing very complicated going on there. Hmm. Nice. Any other aspects of authorization we need to hit? Well, we could just talk about um, storing secrets in uh, the development environment. Okay. So we're living in a world now where a lot of code is on GitHub, right? Yes. So what you don't want to, to do is uh, store secrets like passwords to uh, third-party services or whatever in your source code and also not in configuration files be because these are in your project and you're checking them in. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they really thought about that uh, at Microsoft. And there are two well, great ways to actually cope with that problem. The first way is to... Uh, put all the secrets in environment variables on the operating system level. Okay. And then in your startup file from for, for ASP.NET Core, you can just say, use these environment variables in the configuration. And then when you, when you build your configuration, they are just key value pairs again that you can read. And But in the background, they are uh, just uh, environment variables. So now you can just use other environment variables in, on your production machines than you, than you use on your development machine or whatever. Mm -hmm. Another way to do it is uh, using the secret manager. And a secret manager is uh, an extension for the .NET CLI. So in .NET Core, uh, we have the .NET CLI command that can build application, restore packages, etc., etc., And that can be extended by um, installing uh, extra packages. Mm -hmm. And one of them is the secret manager. And you can say .NET and then add a secret. And then that secret is stored in the user uh, folder again. Okay. So it's, it's, it's taken out of the, of the project and it's in the user folder. And then uh, again, in your configuration, in the, when, you, when you, do your, uh, your, you, you read your configuration data, you can just say add user secrets. And then these secrets are made available in your application. Hmm. Are these encrypted on the disk? No. <laughs> Not <right>. yet. <laughs> so you have to do that yourself. Yes. But at least you are, it's a per user, you know, nothing embedded in the code. You It automatically needs to fetch them. But, you know, I, I might be handing out keys to my group of developers so they can access the Azure App Store for this. But that's all they'll yes. get. And then if I revoke those keys, they don't have access to it anymore. Yes, exactly. That's the whole thing. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, very cool. So what's next for you, Roland? What are you, what are you working on? I'm working on uh, a course for Pluralsight right now about this topic. Oh, very good. When nice. can we expect to see that? I think it will be out um, in the first quarter of next oh, year. Great. Awesome. Yeah. We'll keep an eye out for that. Roland, thank you very much for talking to us for this hour. It's been great. You're welcome. I'm, uh, I'm honored to be here. All right. Well, so are we. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.
Dotnet Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and of course in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a